Now, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We've made it out of 1 Peter, and now we are into 2 Peter. And this week as I was uh, preparing and studying for this, what really kind of came back to my mind was, when I was a kid, I grew up in the Michael Jordan era. If you guys, any of you grew up in the Michael Jordan era? Okay, a couple of us. Yeah, so for those of you who might not know who Michael Jordan is, he is the greatest athlete that has perhaps ever lived. He just dominated people on the basketball court, and he made it so that a whole generation of young people like me, as we watched him, it inspired us, and we wanted to be like him. There's even the song, Want to Be Like Mike, and we all knew it, and we all sang it, and we didn't tell other people what we were doing, but we were. And when nobody was looking, we'd lower down the basketball rim to seven and a half foot, and we'd go and we'd dunk on it, and we'd try to recreate the shot. We try to recreate the dunk where he jumps from the free throw line. All of these things, like if I work hard enough, I can be like Michael Jordan. I will be the next great basketball player. Well, it didn't even take a couple of years for me to figure out, after my best efforts in the YMCA league, that I was not going to be the next Michael Jordan. <laughs> that I wasn't even going to be a marginally good basketball player. That I was a pretty bad basketball player. And if I played with people a lot younger than me, then I still would probably get beat. So I just accepted the fact that I wasn't ever going to be good or significant in the world of basketball. Some people were given unique gifts and talents and skills and abilities that allowed them to excel and to do great things on the hardwood floor. And then there were people like me who had nothing, and you were just lucky if you could keep your shoes tied running up and down the court. That was my life. But what happens is sometimes we get that attitude when it comes to our spiritual walk. We all recognize that there are certain people in this world that have incredible talents and abilities that allow them to do amazing things, and we carry that over into the spiritual life. You see, when I gave my heart to Jesus, I was excited. And I looked at the people like the Billy Grahams, the John Wimbers, even going back in time to John Wesley. I grew up Methodist, so he was one of the heroes of the faith for me. And I saw the closeness that they had with God. I saw the way that they just seemed to walk with him, that they heard from him, that they had this love in their heart for him, and they seemed to sense God's love for them in a way that I didn't. And I saw the way that God used them to reach untold masses of people and lead so many into the kingdom of God. And I thought, this is what I want. It inspired me, just like Michael Jordan had inspired me to be a basketball player. Seeing these other people and what God had done in them and through them inspired me to want that same kind of a spiritual life. Well, what happened was a little bit of time goes by, and I begin to see that I'm still not measuring up to the Apostle Paul. I still don't seem to have that ability to pray like these other people pray. I'm not as into worship as other people are. I don't sense God's presence like other people seem to. And you begin to think that maybe there are some people who God has just called to be close to him, called to be used in special ways and to reach lots of people, and then there's the rest of us and we're saved, and we're going to heaven, and that's about all that we can expect out of life. And that, that desire and that passion that you have to pursue God begins to wane, and it begins to fade in your life. And you start looking at, there's the spiritual elites, and then there's the rest of us. And I'm just one of the rest of us. The same thing's happening in the church in the early times, because you think it's bad for us when we look at a Billy Graham, and we see what he's doing, and then we look at what we're doing. Imagine that you're getting a handwritten letter from the Apostle Peter. And you're looking at him like, I, he's living, he's walking, he's writing letters to you. And you look at your life and you're like, my shadow hasn't fallen anyone and they were miraculously healed. Like, I've never raised anybody from the dead. 
I'm not an apostle. I'm not all these things. I didn't walk with Jesus for three years on this earth. And you can begin, and they're beginning to think, you know, maybe there's this life that they've been called to. There are these special blessings that they have. And then there's me. And that begins to kill their desire to follow Jesus. It makes them become marginal Christians. And then when suffering and persecution come, you say, well, you know, I'm not even that close to God anyways. I'll just kind of keep my faith secret and go on with my life and I'll see God in heaven and it's going to be great. And Peter writes to them because he wants to encourage them. He wants them to say, don't give up on your walk with God. Don't give up on your pursuit of knowing Jesus and having an intimate relationship with him. This is something that you can have. And so he writes to them in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, and he says, His divine power has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. So my question when I started to feel like maybe there's different people and then there's like the class of Christian that I belong to, was does God have a plan for me? Does God have a calling on my life? Are there things that he wants to do in me or is that just for other people? And if this is something that I've been called to do, then how is it that I get there? How do I make it so that I begin to look like these heroes of the faith that have gone before me? And Peter begins to address this question by saying that God has precious and very great promises for all of us. For every single one of us. Peter says that we have received these great promises from God. It's not for the few, it's not for the elite. Every single one of us have received these promises from God. And it begins with salvation, that God has brought the forgiveness of our sins to us. He's breathed spiritual life into us. We were once uh, slaves to sin and now we've been made free. That there's this redemption, there's healing, there's hope that we have received in Jesus. But more than that, there's also a holy calling that is on our lives. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, he said, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's who every single one of us are. We are handpicked to be a part of God's royal priesthood. And for the people that are hearing this, the, the class of priests, they're the highest class inside of the society. They're the ones that everybody looks to. They're held up high and they're revered. They're a special people. And that's what Jesus is saying is that you have been made a part of the royal priesthood if you have received my salvation. That you have this intimate connection with God now. That you can hear from me. That you are supposed to represent me to other people. Every single one of us that have decided to follow Jesus, we have this precious promise. And it goes beyond that. Not only have we been made a part of God's priesthood, but it says that you are God's special possession. Now, what's the most precious thing that you have? What's the one possession that you cherish the most of anything? Uh, for me, it's actually funny. It's on stage. It's that guitar right there. So nobody take it. But I was 16 years old. I had just bought a car because everybody wanted a car when you're 16. And I remember going to Elderly Instruments in Lansing and I saw that guitar and I strummed a G chord across it once. And I took it up to the front desk and I said, put this on hold. I'm coming back for it. And I went home and three days later I had sold my car and I came back and I bought that guitar and I loved it. I named it Mary. And Mary was the love of my life. She's the apple of my eye. Nobody touched her. 
That first night I had her in her case and I slept with her holding her in my arms. My parents thought it was pretty weird. But this was a precious thing to me because even then I was imagining someday I'm going to give this to a son or to a daughter and they'll give it to one of their children. This is going to be a family heirloom. So you know, every time I'd use it, I'd wipe it off real carefully and inspect it for any scratches or repairs that might need to be done. I mean, I love this thing. It was always on my thought and on my mind. And then I grew up a little bit and I realized there are more important things like my children. And now my children, my family, my wife, they're the most precious things in this world to me. They're always on my heart. They're always on my mind. There is nothing else in the whole world to me like my family. And this is what God is saying about you. Part of the precious promise that you have is that you are his special possession. That he loves you. He cherishes you. That there's no one else in the world like you to him. It says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made, that he knit you together in your mother's womb. That he had a destiny that he prepared for you before the foundations of the earth were laid. You are absolutely valuable to God. That's a part of the promise that we all have. That's pretty awesome stuff. Like We're God's special possession. We're his priesthood. We're supposed to walk with this intimate relationship, this connection with God where we hear from him. Uh, he speaks to us, and then he uses us to go out and to proclaim the goodness of God in the world that's around us. That's the holy calling that every single one of us have. It's what God created us to do. But the question is, do you live feeling like that is real in your life? Do you live walking around feeling like you really are a part of the royal priesthood? Do you feel like you do hear from God all the time, that you sense his presence, you sense his promptings and his leadings, that you have this closeness with him? Do you see yourself as God's special possession? Someone so precious that he spilled his own blood to purify you, to wash you of your sins and make it so that you could inherit eternal life. And that's how precious you are. But do we feel like that? Do we believe that's real inside of our lives? When we make that decision to follow Jesus, it's because we have had this revelation of his goodness and his love for us. But then as the time goes on, you begin to, to let that fade a little bit. Because you look at the other people like the Billy Grahams and you start comparing yourself and you say, why is it that I'm not like him yet? Why is it that I haven't become as close to Jesus as a John Wesley was? Why am I not being used as effectively in ministry like some of these other people are? And there's a really simple answer to that. It's that salvation isn't a decision that you make. It's a journey. You know, it's more than decision. It's so important that you come to this place of where you do decide to follow Jesus and you put your faith and your trust in him. But that's not the fullness and the totality of your salvation. That faith that you had that saved you now has to become a faith that changes you. And you grow in that closeness with God every day. You grow in that sense of his presence inside of your life. You grow in your ability to proclaim the praises of God and to share with others what it is that he's done inside of you. And really when we look at this, your holy calling is that you weren't called uh, to be like Billy Graham. You weren't called to be like John Wimber or any of these other people. The part of that holy calling is that you were called to be like Jesus. It says that we take on his divine power. It says that we're called into his likeness. 
And when we were created, it says that we were all made in the image of God. But what sin did was sin kind of made it so now we're like a Picasso version of God. You look at it and it's kind of messed up. And if you use your imagination, you can see a person there. But when you make that decision to follow Jesus, now what happens is he comes and he begins to reshape you into that image of God. You know what's so attractive about the people like Billy Graham and John Wimber and John Wesley and all of them? It's the parts of them that are like Jesus. What we're attracted to in other people, the heroes of the faith, are the parts of where they've been remade into the image of God. That's the part that draws on our heart. That's the part of us that we want to be like. But it's not something that happens for you overnight. It's something that begins to happen to you daily. It's a process that you go through. A lot of people, they're always concerned because they say, well, if God loves me so much, then why is it that I have to change? And why can't I just remain the same? And so one camp of people often say that you have to be perfectly in the image of God before you can become a Christian and encounter God. And then the other group of people a lot of times say, hey, God just loves you exactly like you are. You never have to change. It's God's grace is good for everybody. But both of those are wrong. It's a lot like for those of you that have children. When you had that child, that little baby infant, when it came out and you saw that baby, your heart was just connected to it. You looked at your baby and you're like, oh, I've never seen something more precious in my whole life. And that's not entirely true. When you see an infant that isn't yours, they don't come out precious and cute like the Gerber baby. They come out like grumpy, squawky, gray aliens, and they're not that cute. But because it's your baby, you're just like, oh, it's so precious. I'm in love with this child. And you know what they do is they cry nonstop. They cry all the time. They're hungry. They cry. They have to be changed. They cry. They're tired. They cry. Everything leads to tears on their part and on yours. But you love this child because they are yours. And you wake up five, six, seven times a night. You're like the walking dead. That is what parents are. That's where they got the idea for that whole show. They looked at parents and they made a movie or a show based on it. But you're so tired. You're worn out. You're exhausted. The baby never stops crying, but you love them just the way they are. But there's also this expectation that the baby is going to grow and mature and become like you. Now, if, you're 18, if your child is 18 years old and they're still waking you up at night to be fed, if they still need you to change their diaper, there's going to be some failed expectations there. You're not going to be as happy. It's not as cute when they're 20. <laughs> but when they're a baby and they're an infant, it's completely fine. And this is the way it is for us with God. Is, is God looks at you right where you are and he loves you. It doesn't matter if you've made a decision to follow Jesus or not. He loves absolutely every single person on the face of this earth. And you don't have to do anything to make yourself presentable to him. You don't have to straighten up. You don't have to clean up and get in line. You just have to say, Jesus, I love you. I submit myself to you. Would you be the Lord of my life and forgive my sins? And at that moment, you become a child of God. And you might be that little infant. We all were. When you made that decision to follow Jesus, you didn't look a whole lot different than you did three seconds ago. But God loves you. But there's also an expectation that he has for you now to begin to grow, to begin to change, and to become the image of God. See, God loves you so much that he will accept you exactly where you are. There's no one who's too far, who's done too much, who's had too much done to them that will make it so Jesus doesn't love them. But Jesus also loves you so much that he won't leave you where you are. Because what's happened is we were prisoners. We were slaves to sin. 
And it shaped the way that we view ourselves. It shaped the way that we view the world. And now Jesus comes in and he begins to heal those wounds. He begins to address and to bandage the hurts. He begins to make our hearts whole again. He begins to reveal truth to us. And he begins to lead us on this journey of salvation where day by day we begin to know God more deeply, more intimately. We're more connected to him. We're more in the image of God that we were created to always be in. And we're used more powerfully to be those who go out and proclaim the gospel of God that has changed our lives so much. Your salvation is a journey. The journey takes time, but the journey is worth it. And every day from now until the day when you die, God's going to continue to renew you and to make you like him. And the good thing about this journey, because when you look at it, you're like, wow, this is a long time. Do I have what it takes to make it through this journey? The good thing is that God provides you with everything you need on your journey. It says this in that passage you looked at, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God's the one that made you spiritually alive, and God's the one who's going to continue to provide you what it is so that now you can live a godly life. When you look at this journey, uh, so many people quit because they, they look at it and they say, I don't have what it takes. Like, I can't make myself be like one of these heroes of the faith. I can't make myself in the image of God. And that's why God says it's not reliant upon your efforts. It's not reliant upon how much perseverance or self-discipline you have. The way that you change, the way that you progressed on this journey of salvation is entirely reliant upon my power at work in your life to change you. See, God made some promises to a man named Abraham. And when he appeared to him, he said, I'm going to give you offspring. They're going to be numerous. I'm going to bless all of the nations of the entire world through you. And I was ultimately looking forward to the day when Jesus would be born of his bloodline and that he would bring salvation to all of the world. And so what does Abraham have to do in that? Nothing. As he's walking down this journey of God's blessings and his promises to him, it's not dependable what he can do. He's a hundred-year-old man. He can't have children. It's an impossible thing for him to do. But God gives him a child, and that child becomes a family. And this family ends up moving to Egypt. And when they're in Egypt, they have great favor. At first, the Pharaoh loves them. Everybody loves them. They begin to multiply rapidly. It's becoming a very large family now. Now it's getting to the point of where they're a nation living within a nation. And then a new pharaoh decides we're going to enslave these people, we're going to imprison them, and uh, that's how we will solve the Jewish problem. And so for 400 years, these people who had the promise of God that he was going to bless them and bless all of the nations through them are living as slaves. There's nothing they can do to free themselves. There's nothing they can do to make the promises that God has given them happen or become a reality for their life. In fact, it looks like the promises that God has made to them are completely dead. There's no way that God can bring about the fulfillment of the promises when they're living as slaves inside of Egypt. And so God raises up a man named Moses. And through incredible signs and wonders, he goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. That's what God says. Pharaoh says, no. But you guys know you can't win an argument with God. And so there's all of these signs and wonders that then convince Pharaoh, okay, I'm going to let these people go. So these two million people, will start out as one man, became a family, a family of slaves. Now two million people, they set out on this journey to the promised land that God has called them to. Because God has miraculously freed them from slavery. 
And they go out, and on this journey, you think, two million people walking through the desert, this is going to be tough. They come across the Red Sea. You guys know God splits the Red Sea. They walk through it. Two million people eat a lot of food. There's not a lot of food in the desert. So as they're on this journey to the promised land, God makes manna appear on the ground every morning so they have food. Two million people drink a lot of water, not a lot of water in the desert. So what does God do? He makes it so that water is just pouring out of this rock, and they have everything they need. On this journey that they're going through, God provides them with absolutely everything they need so that they can walk into the fulfillment of this promise. And that's the same thing that God's going to do in our lives. If you've been struggling with a sin that keeps you from knowing God fully and uh, overcoming this obstacle that's there before you, this says that God's going to be the one that empowers you and strengthens you to overcome this sin. If there's something that you've been called to do, but you don't have the resources to do it, God will provide the resources for it. The God that's able to make manna appear on the ground is able to give you the resources that you need to do whatever he's called you to do. If you need people that are around you that will encourage you and strengthen you in this, well, that's why God created the church. We're a family. We come here together. We encourage each other. We hold each other accountable. And accountable doesn't mean you get in people's business when they've been bad. It means that you hold someone, give them account of the ability that they have within them. So it's like you say, hey, you know what? You have this incredible gift. God can use you inside of this. Are you using this gift for God? That's holding someone accountable. Whatever it is that you need, God will provide for you so that you can continue to walk into the promise that he has for you. So how does all of that happen? How is it that we receive all of these promises from God? How is it that we are changed into the image of God? And it says that we receive everything we need through knowing God. That's how it happens. It's not something that we work up. It's not something that we have to do. Everything that we need to have our lives changed into the image of God, to restore the relationship with Him, to stir up passion in our heart, to give us the strength that we need, Everything comes from knowing God. Because we were created to encounter God in an experiential and a relational way. If your faith is just believing that God has saved you and now following a list of rules, you're not going to encounter God like that. You're not going to grow in your relationship with Jesus that way. You're not going to sense his closeness and his presence. You're not going to be changed on the inside of you if that's all that your faith is. See, Israel received everything they need because it said that the presence of God went before them in the day they had a a pillar of uh, fire and a pillar of cloud that would lead them and guide them through the desert. That was the way that they encountered the presence of God and received everything that they needed. But Israel made a mistake. What happened was Jesus, or not Jesus, but God came to Mount Sinai while they were on their way to the promised land And he said, I want to meet with you, with all of the people. I want to speak to you, develop relationship with you. But the people, instead of embracing that and saying, we want to know God in that way now, they said, Moses, you go and you talk to God for us, and then you tell us what it is that God wants us to do. And so that's what happened, and that's where the Ten Commandments came from. And so what they did was they traded the relationship, the experiential encounter with God, for a list of rules that they would follow. And what happened then was they disconnected themselves from the promises of God. Because now they were trying to live in a godly way just by following some rules, by their own strength. And we love Scripture. Like, Scripture is incredible. But if you just read your Bible and it's not spoken to you by God, then it's worthless to you. That's why it says the Pharisees, they knew the Bible. They memorized the Scripture. 
but they didn't understand what it was saying. It didn't bring life inside of them. It didn't change their hearts because they didn't have God speaking the scripture into them when they read it. When they read it, the Holy Spirit wasn't dwelling inside of them, interpreting it for them, and showing them the truth and the beauty of what God was speaking to them and having their hearts convicted by God as they read the scripture. For them, it was just a lifeless, dead set of rules that they would read and tried to make themselves godly by doing this. And so when they came to the promised land and they went in there to spy it out, they sent some spies in there and they all came back to give a report of the land and all of them but two said, the land is impossible. We cannot go in there. This land that God promised us, we cannot take it. There are giants living in that land. We are going to get beat. We are all going to die. We should have stayed in Egypt. What happened was because they traded a relationship with God in for a list of rules now that they would follow to try to make them godly, they forgot who it was that was with them. And they started looking at what they could do based out of their own power and their own strength instead of looking at what God could do for them and through them based out of his unlimited, infinite power. And so they didn't go into the promised land. And they spent 40 years in the desert an entire generation died inside of the desert, never walking into the promise that God had given them, the promise that God had provided them with. Because they were able to believe God for salvation, for freedom, but they weren't able to believe God for change inside of their own hearts. And this is what happens to us too many times. We have these promises from God, we want this relationship with him. We want a closeness with him. We want to be used to reach the nations. But we trade that relationship with God in for a list of rules. And when we do that, what we're saying is that, God, I don't need you to change me. I can change me. Just tell me what you want me to change about myself, and then I will do it. And that's pride. And the reason we do that is because it's a lot easier to just have a list of rules you follow than to continue to develop a relationship. You know what? The closest relationship I have in my life is with my wife. And that is a hard relationship. And to continue to build that and to continue to strengthen it and to have that daily connectedness with someone. That's difficult. If I just had a list of rules of what the husband was supposed to do, you know, that might be a lot easier. But I wouldn't be able to follow those rules because there'd be no love in my heart that connected me to her. See, Jesus said that those who love me, obey me. So that doesn't mean that you prove how much you love God by obeying him. It means that because you have a love inside of your heart for Jesus, you naturally obey the way that he wants you to live your life. The obedience is the overflow of the love and relationship that you have with God. It comes out of the connectedness that you have with him. But too many times what we do is we trade all of that in or we never realize that that relationship with God is possible for us. And we keep trying to change ourselves. And we keep struggling with the same things over and over again. And we become frustrated and we give up. And we never take hold of the promises that God's made to us. And you live thinking, I'm a nominal Christian. God has great things for other people, but not for me. This morning... I want you to know what a lie that is. Jesus has the ability to change you in ways that you never thought were possible. 
Everything that you need is found in him. The relationship and closeness that you can have with God, it's right there. The way that God will mature you and grow you to look like him, it's right there. It's available. Jesus is the one who does that inside of your heart. The people that he's called you to reach, the ministry that he's called you to, is something that he will provide for you if you just continue on this journey with him of hearing his voice speak to you, pursuing him every day, knowing him, and allow him to provide everything that you need on this journey. You guys stand with me this morning. Let's pray together. God, would you speak to our hearts? God, would you come and would you make yourself known? Would you make yourself real in this place this morning for every person that's here? Here's the thing that I think God is speaking to us this morning. He's speaking to those who maybe have given up hope for the life that you once thought that you could have. You've thought that you can't be closer to God. You've thought that you can't live in a more godly way, that you can't follow this dream that God once placed in your heart. But Jesus is here this morning to restore. He's here to move inside of you. He's here to shape you into his own image. He's here to provide everything that you need for this journey that is salvation and to lead you into the fulfillment of his promise. But it begins with us being honest with him and saying, God, I haven't been following you and pursuing you the way that I should. I've given up. I've lost faith in what you could do inside of me. But Jesus, would you come and would you restore hope in me? Would you restore faith and expectation? Would you put the vision and the dream inside of me once again? And if that's you this morning, would you just raise your hand with me as a way of saying, God, would you come? And would you do something new inside of my heart, inside of my life? I don't want to follow rules anymore. I don't want to try to make myself godly. I want your presence in my life to make me godly. I want to be transformed and changed and made into your image by your power, not by mine. Not by me continuing and struggling to do it again and again, but by you doing it inside of me. Thank you. Let's just pray this together this morning. Father, we love you. I thank you so much for your love for me. Would you open my eyes to see how great your love is? Would you help me see how cherished I am? How loved I am by you? God, would you reveal yourself fresh and new to me? Would you speak to my heart and give me the faith to follow you? God, I want to encounter you this morning. I want to live in obedience to your voice. God, I want your refreshing inside of my heart. Would you put your vision in me? God, lead me into the fulfillment of your promise. I surrender doing it my way. And I come fully to you. 
name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.